Welcome to the CSBS podcast, the podcast series of the Center for Social and Behavioral Science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. The purpose of the podcast is to showcase our researchers, give voice to our community, and if we can, have some fun along the way. We are researchers, practitioners, and all-around social and behavioral science nerds. We're glad you're here for the journey. Talking about personal stories can be healing, gratifying, uncomfortable, and in some cases, life-changing. In this episode, CSBS Associate Director Christina Alvarez and myself, Peter Ondish, sit down with Professor of Psychology, Carla Desian Hunter. As we unravel the truths of her own story, we will discuss racial trauma in black and brown communities, colorblind attitudes, and Black Lives Matter. We'll also discuss how to facilitate healing by normalizing and validating stories within communities of color. So the first question is a background question, and it's a little bit personal, actually. Uh, so tell us your story. How did you become interested in studying racial trauma, and more generally, ethnic and racial minority psychology? The way I start my story is uh, to say, as I always do identify, because these identities are really important to me, is as a Black woman, an immigrant, first-generation college student, um, and so when I became interested in psychology, it was very early. And for me, it was also a way of understanding the world and ethnic minority psychology in particular, because it had to do with health equity. And it was something I realized growing up quickly that our community, black communities, brown communities were struggling with health equity. And that we were seeing, even within my own family, we were seeing high rates of depression, anxiety, other fatalities that were not simply due to individual differences of the personality, that it had more to do with stressors in the environment. And so it's interesting for me also to see when I started this journey in graduate school, we talked a lot about race-related stress at that time. And so even the terminology around racial trauma has evolved even since the time I've been in school. And I think it's a more fitting framework because racially stress is just too limiting. Like we all, we all started to learn around the stress and coping framework. And that was the big one that we were all introduced to when I was in graduate school. And then it's, I'm so happy to see that quickly we're realizing that uh, it's, yeah, as I said, it's too limiting and a trauma framework is much more suitable. So even though um, racial trauma is a terminology that has become known, it's actually, in terms of psychology and counseling psych, clinical psych, uh, it's relatively recent. Uh, this is really interesting. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how you, um, you know, as a person or in your research, define and think about racial trauma? Like for a lot of folks who aren't familiar with it, they might understand that there are these race-based differences, but the, the label of trauma, I think, kind of could be unpacked and uh, really curious to hear how you think about it. Yes, that's a really great question because you're absolutely correct. Um, it was even a challenge. One of the one of my mentors at my graduate um, institution was one of the first ones who started to talk about uh, the time he called it race-based traumatic stress. And so it wasn't even a full incorporation yet of the terminology, racial trauma and really owning it. And I think that's in part around the politics of how the DSM and how we are trained to think about trauma outside of a racial context. And so racial trauma uh, is this idea that they're like any trauma, it's stressors that are beyond one's capabilities, often life-threatening, 
uh, and your response can be one that is trauma. So not everyone experiences race-related stress in a traumatic form. Uh, but what we're realizing is that over time and across generations, of course, these incidents are persistent. They're ongoing. In a talk we did recently, we showed pictures from the 1950s and 1960s around how Black people were being treated by the police, and it's still the same pictures we see today. And so even the stories that we tell each other, the ways that we have to protect ourselves, the ways we have to socialize our Black and brown children to live in the world, um, is all around facing these race-related race stressors. And for some people, those race-related stressors rise to the prominence of trauma. Um, I like the idea of facing them, the way you phrase it, of facing those race-based traumas. Um, I'll um, provide a different way of thinking about it that some people will consider, which is to not think about race at all. Those are the mm -hmm. folks who will advocate for less, a colorblind relational ideology, mm -hmm. for example. What kinds of critiques or comments would you have for uh, you know, a lens that says, you know, just don't think about race. If you don't mm -hmm. face it and if you don't acknowledge it, obviously this framework is super different and it looks like you kind of try to unpack these ideas rather than kind of keep them quiet. Um, can you tell us about that? That is such a common response. And so it's something I've heard um, quite often. And that's the interesting thing about storytelling is so I'm going to take a tangent and I think hopefully come back. So the interesting thing about storytelling is that I feel like people who have a colorblind lens often don't want to hear those stories. They want a simplified perspective of the world. And so we all, we all know the research around colorblind racial attitudes and how they're problematic. They're problematic on many levels. They're problematic interpersonally. They're problematic at the organization level. We have tons of research that shows that. And so for people who say, well, isn't it best to not see color? I mean, that's something we've grappled with for our entire society. Um, even when the colorblind movement came about, it was, it was a way to say, well, we're past this. You know, it's a, also a reflection of our country always wanting to get away from our racial current and our racial past. And I'm not always clear how to speak to folks or give a critique other than what I've already said. And so when you hear stories and you hear stories that counter those colorblind narratives, you know, I think it's about how you're listening to those stories and how much of your own work and your own biases are you willing to look at? So I think that that's the challenge often I've found with folks who advance a colorblind racial, racial ideology. Because as much as they can say, well, look at this person, look how much that person has achieved. I could say, well, look at this and how. So it becomes this intellectual conversation. But what it really needs to be is about awareness and biases and how much cultural difference do you recognize in, in your own life? Yeah, it's not, a, it's not an easy one to answer. I think it's a great question. And it's one that I continue to struggle with personally. So personally, I have not found the correct way to do it. What I, what I do is I often present the research around colorblind racial attitudes and what I know about that research and how problematic the outcomes are. And that research has also come a long way as well. So um, thanks for that answer. That was great. Um, so what kind of uh, suggestions or recommendations would you have for people that are interested in checking those biases that sometimes we have subconsciously? What kind of ideas or suggestions do you have for, for those people? 
Yeah, you've got to get out of your comfort zone. Right? <laughs> we all live in that comfort zone and you have to get out of it and push yourself. I mean, there are things, uh, aspects of diversity that I am less knowledgeable about. And so it's about how do you um, increase the likelihood of interacting with people who are culturally diverse from you, as, as well as reading things that uh, differ from your own perspective and engaging in communities where you don't necessarily feel like you fit where you might be the only minority person. So I would say that those are the ways to get around the um, colorblind racial attitudes. So um, we've talked about this one framework, which is the the colorblind relational ideology. And um, what you're proposing is something radically different. Can you tell us a little bit more um, or unpack the specific work that you've been doing with Seahearts? Sure, the Seahearts framework. Okay, so... The first thing to know about the Seahearts framework is that we wanted to understand, we want to synthesize the literature around how people have thought about community healing. And so what we've tried to do was look at these really desperate literatures uh, that are in nursing, that are in community psych, that are in counseling psych, that in humanities, that are in women's studies, and really see, well, what are folks talking about are the components of healing? And what we attempted to do was synthesize that and put it into a framework and said, kind of like a more of a top, a top view of saying, hey, when you're not in the weeds and you're interested in working with communities and you're interested in healing, this is what we have seen the literature suggests, that you want to have at least an idea of justice. So that's really important. That's not often articulated in the literatures that we read, but it was super important. And this idea of the culturally syntonic processes, the storytelling and resistance, that's something that's super important to many communities. And we tried to put it front and center because the other articles we um, summarized didn't really talk about that piece. But we said, look, you've got to have storytelling and resistance. You've got to have justice. And from there, we talked about the three dimensions that motivate um, movement to what community healing I think what we don't know too much of is whether you have to start in one phase versus a different phase. You know, for us, connectedness and starting at connectedness is super important. I think because many of us, um, myself, Dr. Helen Neville, um, Robin Gobin, Sade Smith, all trained as uh, psychologists, as clinical and counseling psychologists. And so I think we think about connectedness as like a basic kind of, you have to start someplace where you can trust the other people that you're with um, and then move on to collective memory and then to critical consciousness. Um, it's also an observation of many of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Chuanaso, who's the first author, her observation that many communities wanted change, wanted to bring about change, but were, for lack of better words, stuck in a particular phase. So you may have a community who's saying, we want to change things in the school system. We want to do this, but they've never gone through the connectedness phase. And so it's a way of also thinking through, where does this community see themselves? And where, how can we help them um, kind of move to where they'd like to see themselves? Right. So this is kind of what I was uh, getting at, where it seems to me like, you know, from a from someone who's very new to your work, that this is a very different way of thinking mm-hmm. about race relations is it's actually open acknowledgement. It's facing and it's t- like, as you say, storytelling um, for some of the folks who are going to be a little bit more like me and also not be super familiar. I know we kind of just went through a lot of ideas very quickly. Can you kind of give us the elevator 
pitch of kind of what Sea Hearts uh, brings to the table in, in terms of its lens and how it sees the world. So Sea Hearts is both the framework and us as a research cluster. So Sea Hearts is the research cluster. What we're trying to bring is partnering with our local community organizations to bring about community healing. So right now we are doing a um, developing an intervention around our framework that we are wanting to implement with one of our partners. And I think you all are familiar with him, Mr. Tracy Dace of Dream, right? So that's one thing, that's Sea Hearts as the cluster. So it's about research, it's about the applied work. The framework itself is, is meant to be a way to organize thoughts and approaches to community healing that centers storytelling and resistance. That's great. Since we have an audience that is quite interdisciplinary, can you speak to how a team of interdisciplinary researchers came together to work with this community partner? Yeah, so we started, um, that's an interesting part of our story as well. We started not knowing that we were going to become Seahearts. And I think that's what I was saying is a different um, approach to how we typically think of collaboration in academia. Like, so my uh, perception is that typically we say, we have this idea and we find other people who can work with us on this idea, which is fine. How we came together was around our shared relationships and experiences around being Black women in academia at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And so how it happened was um, one of my senior to me colleagues, Dr. Helen Neville, said, we need community, we need connectedness, if you you know, think of it that way in terms of our framework, invited us to dinner. And so we attended a dinner of about maybe 12, 13 of us. And in, in talking with each other, some people I had met, some people I did had never met before, you know, folks from all over campus. And her charge to us was invite anyone you believe is interested in wellness and well-being and healing in the African-American community. And so we were thinking broadly African-American community, not necessarily Champaign-Urbana, because not every one of our colleagues um, does work that's U.S.-based. And so in talking with each other, we realized that we had many intersecting interests. And then my colleague, Dr. Sade Smith, saw the call from, at the time, IPRH, which is now the Humanities Research Institute, for a research cluster. And said, this is an opportunity for us to work together. So, you know, it was this very organic experience that I've never had with collaborations before. Whereas with collaborations, if here's the idea, we want you to contribute this, come, come, come and contribute to this idea. Whereas this was more organic and it was like, we have a shared interest. What can we do with this? And we received the funding and we went about. At the same time, there was a call for papers from the American psychologist. They had a special issue on racial trauma and healing. And we wanted to respond to that call around our shared interest. And we got to working on the framework. That's wonderful. So what's in the future for your collaboration with, with Dream? What can you tell us about this project going forward? So the project with Dream is super exciting, except the pandemic is going on. So <laughs> the project with Dream is around our that first phase, connectedness. And it's around uh, working with Dream and another community partner called the Well Experience. It's mostly uh, for girls, and whereas Dream is mostly focused on boys, this is focused on girls. We are doing a connectedness 
intervention. So just taking that first phase and we're using um, several exercises as, as ways to in, um, increase storytelling amongst the group. And what we're interested in seeing is uh, the processes that take place. So just at a qualitative level, what does this process look like from beginning to end? We're gonna interview parents around what are their hopes and dreams for their children. At the beginning and the end, we're gonna ask the children, the participants, how has this impacted you? In what ways has it been positive? What ways is it negative? And it's more around connectedness, around a shared experience of their experiences in school and with education. Because oftentimes our children don't have a lot of opportunity to speak with each other. So they're observing a great deal, they're experiencing a great deal, but they're not necessarily talking to each other. And we want to stimulate them talking to each other as well as start to envision what their futures are going to look like. And so even though it seems a little uh, premature, they're going to be, they're middle schoolers. Uh, but it's the idea in education that you have to envision possibilities and see possibilities to get to those possibilities. Uh, and we're going to end with a um, celebration event where this is Tracy's idea is that they develop a portfolio of their experiences that they can share with the community, share with their parents. So I think that's the other important thing about Sea Hearts is that we are in community with each other. And we also are always wanting to be in community with the local community. So what I didn't say before was in addition to working on the framework, we also did focus groups around gun violence in the community, as well as did a, um, a Voices of Community Healing event. This was about two, two years ago now in the fall where we uh, took one of the things we talked about in the framework, which is digital storytelling, as one way of generating collective memory and showed the digital stories during the Voices of Community Healing event. And so I think that's the thing that's also different about us is that we are trying to disseminate our research and include community members in our research. Um. This is super interesting. Do you have other plans to partner with community organizations um, other than DREAM or, or do you see avenues to maybe take uh, this kind of trauma-informed perspective into uh, universities or into uh, other schools? Um, how, how broad can you go with this? That's a great question. And I think in keeping with our, our approach, we are not thinking too far ahead. As it turns out, the intervention with DREAM is a pretty uh, time-consuming uh, <laughs> process. And it also takes, you know, the IRB and all the things that go in involved. And with now having to do it um, virtually, we're having to kind of rethink, you know, like we, uh, when we were planning it, we said, okay, we need scissors, <laughs> we need magazines, we need, you know, things to do some vision board exercises. And now we're having to switch, you know, us old schoolers are like, oh my goodness, how do people do vision boards with no physical, you know, paper? So it's kind of like thinking through what platforms can we use? How can we use those platforms to our advantage? So it's also, it's actually taking a bit more concentration and intent than even we, I think, anticipated. So I think we're not there yet thinking about what's next because we haven't even been able to disseminate this as yet. So I know, and I think that's the other thing with research is that, and especially the culture we're in, it's always like, a, where are you going to go next? What's the next plan? You know, and I, you know, it's, we're thinking big and also at the same time, we're being realistic and we are on the lookout for grants. So I would say that's the other thing we've been doing 
is looking at uh, education grants. Uh, we, my colleague Sade, uh, secured some internal funding to assist with the Dream Project. So I'd say, if anything that we're thinking of, it's not another project, but funding for this project, because once we roll it out, we also still have to possibly do one more besides the pilot, tweak any quirks that we observed based on the feedback that we get. And so I think we're sticking with Dream for a while. So parents, we're partners, uh, and we also are still maintaining our own lines of research. So this is our, our collaborative project, but we each still have our own lines of research that connect to this, but is different that we are the PIs on. So um, I want to move on to uh, another issue, um, but before that, um, you kind of did bring up a really interesting point that with the kinds of digital interactions that we're having now because of the COVID-19 pandemic, that must place a unique hurdle on this kind of work. How do you do this kind of work? Um, you know, vision boards, uh, you know, the tools and the utensils that you need. Um, what are the challenges that you, how do you do it? Well, that was the first challenge is that we were in denial when we first started to plan the project. And one of our um, members of our community partners, Ms. Sandra Somerville, kept saying, what is the plan for if we don't go back to face to face? And I think I, for one, was like, we're going to go back to face to face. There's no plan needed. And so how do we get around that is that we have um, biweekly meetings where we talk through all of this, we pool our collective knowledge and our resources. Luckily, um, as the faculty, you all know that we've had to learn Zoom and these platforms very quickly. And so it's also been about thinking outside the box and learning from other people that there are other suites that may be that work for us. Oftentimes, we're not sure if the kids have access, you know, I think is the other thing that we're, is really so there are some tangibles that we can think through. But if the kids don't have access to these things, then we're, we're kind of stuck. So we're at the place right now where we've figured out maybe we can use Zoom, right? Then we can use um, Google Draw alongside Zoom to figure out the vision boards um, and think through. We can use clip art off the web, free stuff, of course, um, to bring in for the vision boarding exercises. And then there's other exercises where they have to do an interview and maybe there's a way that they can just do a phone interview and record it. I don't know, but then we still haven't encountered, we're not, we're not sure because we don't have participants enrolled in yet, how many people have access to the equipment we will need. And if they don't have access, how to get them access, how many of the students feel proficient in these different um, apps. Like I always assume that kids younger than me feel proficient, but um, that may or may not be true. I just often think they must know this. If I know this, they know this, but it's a learning curve. Everything's a learning curve. And so that has been really challenging. So what we have tried to do is just consistently meet, try to anticipate some of the challenges that we'll face and trust each other as we are moving through and figuring it out. Cool. So one of the things that I notice about this, um, the Seahearts method that you use is in all of the, the 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 kinds of workshops that you do and and all of the activities you have planned for people. That storytelling seems to be mm-hmm. the big thing that weaves everything together. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more about 
why storytelling is really important and, and what are the ways in which you see it positively affecting the um, African-American communities today? Yeah, so storytelling is just something we all do as um, people, right? We tell stories. I think what we are trying to emphasize is that the types of stories that we tell each other has implications for healing. Um, and those stories have implications for healing because oftentimes they contain our lived experiences. Those stories also often contain what we are calling resistance. Um, they are stories about hardship as well as stories about times where we have overcome those hardships. And that those stories are important to share with generations that are younger than us and, and actually also learn from generations that are older than us. And so the idea of storytelling is not um, unique even to our field, uh, but I think this idea of it being a healing practice, especially for, um, I would, I'll say in my own family, storytelling is not often um, seen as a healing approach, meaning not, not intellectually, but as a, well, Carla, why would you want to hear about the story of us immigrating? I mean, that happened a long time ago. Well, actually, mom, <laughs> I would love to hear about that story because that has implications for, you know, how I think about myself, how we think about immigrants, what are immigrant stories in these countries. And and so I think, you know, our, my family members anyway, I can't speak for the rest of my, um, it's this idea of really driving home. Telling your story is so impactful, not just to you, but for the people listening. So it creates this um, active exchange of listening and receiving and normalizing and hearing. Uh, and also, if you think about living in this country, Black people uh, live in where our stories are not often validated, being in storytelling with each other and highlighting all the ways we are resistant is also empowering as well. So for someone who is interested in um, sharing their stories and um, you know deal with uh, trauma and things like that, um, what resources are available to them to engage in this kind of practice? So in, in our framework, we have talked about um, what we like about the collective memory aspect of our framework is that it's about storytelling, but storytelling in conversation and making it public and available to others. And so digital storytelling is one way that people uh, tell their story and it's not unique to us, but this is something we've seen in nursing where digital storytelling is used as a way of education, as a way of destigmatizing treatment. There are some really um, many, we, I reviewed many digital stories in preparing the manuscript focused on migrant workers' experience of cancer and hearing each other's stories about the experience of going through treatment. Uh, and so uh, I think digital storytelling is one way. There's also, you know, the Black church and going into community if you are a religiously oriented person and being in community with your pastor is another way of telling story. And it's also very public in church. So I think this idea of it being public, because I think that's the other thing why we are looking outside of psychology a little, little bit beyond a dyadic relationship we are typically taught to work in as uh, counseling and clinical psychologists is about storytelling in community. And so one of the things we talk about in the manuscript is the emotional emancipation circles. And that was an initiative started by the Community Healing Network and the Association of Black Psychologists around facilitating storytelling and resistance in communities. And we are hoping 
uh, to have them come to Champagne. That's one of the, I guess, maybe Peter, this was your question. That's one of our plans is to have the facilitators come to Champagne to train many of us to engage in being a facilitator for emotional emancipation circles. And so we haven't been able to realize that as yet. We're still seeking funding for that, but that that would be awesome if we we each were able to participate in the emotional emancipation circles and then create emotional emancipation circles here in Champaign-Urbana. Right. It's interesting to think about how, and I don't know if it's partly a generational difference or if it's partly just a an in-person, you know, person-to-person difference for whatever reason, but, you know, some people don't like to talk about those stories. Um, Do you feel like folks who have a harder time or maybe just for some reason don't prefer to talk about uh, those stories in uh, in a collective fashion like this? What's, what's the way to, to, to get them to buy in? And do you feel like they usually, if they do like take that first step, they actually find it to be a positive experience? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the first way to buy in is that connectedness. I think it's, it's correct. It's really difficult to tell a story and tell your story where you don't trust anyone else in the room or the people in the room don't look like you or you're not sure if they can relate to your experience. I had some stats from Pew, which show the differences between how white, black, Asian, Hispanic individuals in the U.S. view um, obstacles to racial equity, right? And so there's a, it's just not your assumptions, but it's just this real reality that we are not all on the same page. Um, And I think it's very hard to tell a story in the presence of people who you suspect are not on your page. And so I would say, yes, you need that trust first. You need that connectedness, which is why it was so important to write this framework, because many of the manuscripts we were reading talked about the process of storytelling, but not necessarily what comes before it. And so we we wanted to make it clear that you have to build this connectedness to be able to tell those stories. So, so Peter, if you walked up to me just individually and said, tell me your story, what you're getting from me is my very academic story, but you're not getting my kind of personal reflection. This is my lived experience of of being at the university story, we would have to get to know each other a little bit more for you to get that story. And I and I, I agree, I think people do find it very therapeutic to share their story when it's done in a trusting environment. Could you tell us how the Black Lives Matter movement connects to this idea of storytelling? So I think that that's not what is, we've always told our stories, um, typically black people have not had people who are interested in telling and listening to those stories or validating and believing those stories. I think what Black Lives Matter has done is said, um, given everyone else a wake up call to listen to these stories, right? There's always been, um, and it's an aspect of resistance as well. So there's always been, um, black people in this country working for justice, working for equity, Um, I've been doing my research here at Champaign-Urbana since 2005, right? So this is not new to be doing this research in this context. What's new is that people actually want to hear these stories now. So I know that's not a direct answer to your question, but that is my honest answer. (laughs) (laughs) Is that I I mean, Black Lives Matter is is storytelling, but again, it's people are going, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe we can listen to your stories. We're actually ready to hear those stories now. I don't think Black people have ever doubted that Black lives matter. We've always believed that Black lives matter. 
it just has become a way to voice that. So let's suppose that um, someone were interested in, in taking part in um, this storytelling experience um, where they get to, um, you know, share in the, the kind of community um, narrative where they get to kind of tell about their experiences and they get all the benefits of the, the healing and the, uh, the growth that come from that. Uh, someone's interested, how do they get involved? So as you mentioned before, there's lots of great initiatives in Champaign-Urbana around uh, trauma and resiliency. Um, so actually when folks ask me this directly, I always point them to people, not organizations. And mm. so unfortunately, I, can't, I should really start pointing them to organizations. But for me, it's that personal connection. And so I always say Tracy Dace, Karen Sims, Chandra Somerville, those are the folks in the community that I have known for quite some time that I trust. And I know, know way more about the CU community than I do. And so I direct people there. Um, now at the university, it's so interesting. Um, you know, I would, when I teach my undergrad classes, I always um, try to tell the students that research is another way to tell your story and to hear other people's stories. And so for me, from my lab, I think that's a lot of ways that they engage in storytelling and where they have some validation for this, their stories is uh, through the work we do in our lab. Uh, I also think that if they can find a trusting group, you know, one of my graduate students, um, his dissertation was focused on BNAC and BNAC as a counter space. And what a counter space is, it's just a place that you can go and you feel welcomed and you hear different or counter narrative to the dominant narratives, which is just, so narratives are just larger stories. And so these places, um, counter spaces exist on our campus. I think it's about finding it. Um, so BNAC is a natural one. I mean, at, when I was an undergraduate, I had, we had a black and Latin student union, it was the BLSU. So they function as places for storytelling. The Women's Center, I'm sure, functions as a place for storytelling. So I think there are pockets at campus and in the community. You just have to kind of find how to connect to them. Yeah. I also like that idea that it isn't necessarily something that has to be done on an institutional or organizational level. It's a very personal experience and that, you know, it makes sense to talk to not, you know, a group or, a, you know, an organization, but just a person. So I like for example, calling out, and I will do it as well, to Tracy Dace, uh, <laughs> in front of the centers here, um, as being a, a point of contact to, to learn more about this. Do you also think that this is something that people can do not necessarily, I mean, I know a lot of the emphasis is on community, uh, like organizations, um, you know, what are the kinds of practices that are going on in organizations or groups, but do you also think this is something that could just be done in friend groups, family groups? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It can be done in friend and family groups. And I'll add too, because I don't want to um, downplay the importance of organization. I think uh, what we often have a challenge with is how to move from that into personal. So in our framework, we talk about the personal institution, personal interpersonal and organizational levels. Um, and so I do think that there is a way to move to the organizational level. I am not... Um, Many, many uh, groups, they'll stay at the uh, uh, interpersonal and personal levels. Um, and yes, it can definitely be in families. I think, though, families need some assistance, depending on the family. Um, you know, you just, 
again, it has to be trust and there has to be some kind of a foundation of a relationship there. And it takes time. It's not something that's instantaneous, you know? So, um, yes, I was going to launch into a personal story, but yes. Um, yes, I think it can be done. I think it can be healing. Uh, it just takes time. So I don't want to communicate that this is a, I tell my story and I feel great instantly. It's something that has to take place over a long process and with people you trust. Right. Um, this might be a, a good time, uh, Carla, for you to provide any kind of like, you know, last minute thoughts or other things you wanted to tell us about uh, your work and where you see it applying. Um, I've had a really great time listening to, you know, your personal story and also the, the work that you're doing. It sounds really important, um, but I'll pass the microphone back to you. Uh, let's see. Um, I guess I want to emphasize, um, I guess, this idea of storytelling and resistance again that the stories matter. Um, it's really important, especially for individuals who feel marginalized, not just by race, but by sexual orientation, um, disability status, to share those experiences um, with others that they trust. And for us as those others to listen to those um, experiences and listen to those stories and to believe them and to believe those stories and to remember that Oftentimes with students as well, and even myself as an academic, you know, my presence here uh, and the students present here, presence at the university where they often don't feel welcome is an act of resistance as well. So it's also about remembering that storytelling and resistance go hand in hand, right? So if there's one narrative about who you are, people say you are this way, you can present a different story and that is an act of resistance as well. Awesome. Um, it was great getting to chat with you today. Carla, thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining.